Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 110 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Lime Philosopher, an interview with Courtney Schutze. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, we met Courtney Schutze through her Splash of Lime campaign, which we thought was a brilliant Lime awareness campaign. That brought us to her Instagram page, which was unbelievably powerful. I mean, her penetrating insights really moved us. And when we finally interviewed her, Matt, we were moved emotionally because her story is so painful and that she was honoring her dad by doing a fundraiser that was motivated by her desire to stop families from suffering the pain she and her family suffered while her dad was uh, suffering from cancer. And during that trip that she took, she got sick. And Rich, what really pisses me off about Courtney's story is that her development of chronic Lyme disease was avoidable. She went on this cross-country biking trip and had a bite. She went to the doctor and it was misdiagnosed as a spider bite. The next four years of her life, she continued to get worse and worse. And then finally, she found a Lyme litter doctor who looked at the photo of the bite from four years ago. And with that, did a Lyme test, which ultimately led to her Lyme disease diagnosis. So Matt, the Tick Boot Camp audience is going to be blessed with an introduction to the Lyme philosopher, Courtney Schutze. Hey, Courtney Schutze, and welcome to the program. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's been a long time coming. So Courtney, tell us where you're calling in from. I am calling in from Austin, Texas. And how long have you been living in Austin, Texas? I've only been living in Austin for about six months. It's actually a big part of my Lyme journey. Um, so this is, I'm, I'm in a new city. And what are you doing there in Austin, Texas? I am a marketing manager for a women's health company that focuses on fibroids. So I spend my day advocating for women with fibroids and, and creating community for them. Well, so now I'm jealous twice. I'm jealous that you're living in Austin, Texas, a place I would love to live in myself. And you're doing some really cool work uh, with, uh, with uh, a, a really important community. So um, tell us about where you lived before you moved to Austin uh, a short six months ago. So before moving to Austin, I was in Dallas, Texas, actually a town called Flower Mound, which is where I grew up. Um, and I was living at home with my mom in, in Dallas and focusing on my health. Um, and before that, I, I was jumping around between um, Dallas proper and Houston, trying to work and, and be a real human before I found out I had Lyme. Okay, so let's talk about your, your childhood in Dallas. So you spent almost all of your childhood in Dallas? Yes, I grew up in the same house since I was three years old in Flower Mound, Texas. Um, I'm one of four girls, so my parents had a lot on their plate with all of us. I was very much a daddy's girl and spent um, my life, you know, I loved sports. I was very involved um, in school. I, yeah, I grew up in the same city with, you know, the same people my entire life until I went to um, Austin, Texas to go to the University of Texas um, for college. Okay, so when you were planning to go to college, what is it that you envisioned yourself doing? What were you preparing yourself for? So I, you know, I had a really interesting childhood where I mentioned earlier, I was very much a daddy's girl. I wanted to live, I wanted to make my dad out. I wanted, if he was somewhere, I wanted to be there. He actually called me his little buddy growing up. And um, he went to the University of Texas, both of my parents did. And so I had, that's all I cared about is how do I get into the University of Texas, go Longhorns, I bleed orange, like I want to follow in my dad's footsteps. Um, but as I grew up, my dad had a lot of chronic illnesses and he was sick my entire life. Um, a lot of different autoimmune diseases. Um, and so I was very protective over him and, and really focused on like, how do I make him proud because he's having a hard time living his life? Um, and how do I make money so I can take care of my family? So I really grew up very focused on just head down. How do I get to UT so I can get a good job and I can make money so I could make my dad proud? And that was really all I was focused on. Um, and you know, it really leads into my own story with chronic illness, which I know we'll go into further, but he was definitely a huge thread for me in any kind of motivation I had for 
you know, for achieving anything in life. So as the father of four daughters, I really admire you for having that type of drive uh, and that desire to try to protect your dad and also to help your family. And, and, and thank you for, for having that type of a perspective. Uh, but I, I, I want you to give me some more detail. Let's dig into this a little bit. I mean, you wanted to go to UT. You wanted to, um, you wanted to get a good job. But what is it that you wanted to do? I didn't know. I just wanted to work hard and make money. And I had no idea what that meant. I just knew if I've always been a hard worker, I said, like, I work harder than anyone else. I had that ability. I just, when I got excited about something or I set my mind to something, I would give it 110%. And right. so, so you're, you're successful in achieving your goal and you end up uh, gaining acceptance to UT. And what do you study? So I went to UT and studied communications um, and just got a general degree in corporate communication. Again, was just like, I just want to get a job. I know I'll, I'll know I'll find something because I'll work hard, but I never really let myself have a lot of time to think about what do I care about? What am I passionate about as a person? Um, because through all of this, my dad was really sick and I, I was just really focused on how do I take care of myself to pay for school and get a job and be able to help my family. Um, and I didn't really start to find a passion or a purpose for anything until my dad was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a type of um, blood cancer, my junior year in college. Um, and I was in Austin and he was in Dallas and I felt so separated from his fight against cancer. And again, as his little buddy, as his daddy's girl, that was just so hard for me of like, how do I help him? How, how do I do something for him? And I found out about an organization on campus called Texas 4000, where you bike from Austin, Texas to Anchorage, Alaska to raise money for cancer research. And I was like, this is perfect. I will support him through joining this organization and biking to Alaska. And this is how I can fight cancer with him from afar. Um, and I had this great dream of, I was gonna be biking to Alaska and he was gonna be getting treatment and we were gonna meet in Anchorage and he was gonna be cured and it was gonna be perfect. Um, and, I, and again, I like I mentioned earlier, when I decide to do something, I do it 110%. So, I joined this organization. Um, I became the ride director, so the leader of, of the, the organization and, um, and was just ready to like take it all on. And um, a couple, about a year before I was supposed to go on the ride um, for my senior year, my dad's illness got even worse. And he, um, I ended up having to take some time off of school to go back and be with him. And unfortunately he passed away um, in, on June 10th of 2013 before I was able to actually ride. So it became um, an honor of him versus a fight with him. But it started to change my perspective of how I looked at life. Um, Again, still, I'm doing, I want to do this in honor of my dad, and, and I went on this ride, and um, that ride changed my life in many, many ways. Well, let's talk about how the, that ride changed your life and brought you to the Lyme disease community. How did that, how did that ride change your life? So I um, went on the bike ride um, in 2014, so it started in May of 2014, and it's a um, a 70 day journey from Austin, Texas to Anchorage, Alaska. So um, I'm on the journey. It's, you know, life changing just in living 70 days with, you know, there was 20 other people on my route. You're living out of a duffel bag and every day you're having to get donations to eat because you're trying to raise all the money you can. We're not going to spend money on food. So you're sleeping in churches, people's houses, camping a ton, um, it, it was wonderful. I, I learned a lot about myself of starting to be like, whoa, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what do I care about and what do I want out of my life? I spent so much time just head down of like, I've got to go to school. I got to do well so I can get a good job. Um, but nothing outside of that. And, and this gave me time to really think about it. Um, and so there's a lot of growth happening there. 
And especially when we got to Canada, where we went through the Rocky Mountains, and once we got into Canada, you see no one for, you know, almost a month. It's just the Alaskan Highway, essentially, and, and, and nothing else around you. You know, it could be 100 miles until you see the next gas station. So a lot of wilderness. Um, and we were staying at an abandoned campsite somewhere deep in, um, I think it was British Columbia. And I woke up the next morning after this campsite and I had a bite on my hand and I didn't feel very good. And I was like, oh no, I think a spider bit me. And the, over the next day, I just started to not feel good. I kind of felt like I had the flu, like I was kind of achy and I was like, something's wrong, but we're probably a hundred miles from the nearest doctor. So we ended up, um, you know, I couldn't ride my bike. I was like, you know, I don't feel good. So someone had to take one of our support vehicles and drive me a hundred miles to a doctor. And, you know, this is a town of maybe 300 people that I go to. And I've already decided it's probably a spider bite because it started to grow. It's this big like bullseye rash on my hand around this bite. And I go into this doctor and I'm like, I think maybe it's a spider bite. And he's like, yeah, probably here's a steroid. Gave it to me and sent me on my way. So I take in a picture of the bite because I needed to send it to my mom to be like, mom, what's happening to me? Um, and then never thought about it again. I took the steroids. All of a sudden, I was way faster on my bike and was like, oh, I'm doing great. Um, and didn't think about that bite again for four years. So now, Courtney, what did you know about ticks and tick diseases at that moment in your life? Had you ever heard of ticks? And did you know anything about Lyme disease? So I knew about ticks. Um, but I only knew about them from as a child, knowing like you don't want to get bit by one and they sucked your blood like that. That's all that I knew. I, I knew nothing else. And I had heard of Lyme disease because of the real housewives of, um, I forget which one, but Yolanda Hadid had Lyme disease. And I remember watching the show in college while all the women on the show were saying that she was faking it. Um, and I just kind of taken that in and, and, you know, kind of had this negative, like, um, interpretation or of what Lyme was, um, but nothing more than that. So I didn't even know to, to ask the doctor about Lyme or that what I was looking at was Lyme. Um, so the, so the thought never crossed your mind that the bite that you had received was from a tick and that it could have been Lyme disease. Yeah. I, I not, not even until after I was diagnosed when a friend. Okay. So now the doctors pumped you up with steroids. You're now riding uh, to your destination in uh, Alaska. And how did the rest of your, uh, your riding journey go between the time that you see the doctor who gave you the steroids and the time that you arrived to Alaska? Yeah, so when I got bit, it was about eight days out from getting to Anchorage. So there wasn't a lot of ride left. And um, it, it went well. You know, I didn't think about it again. It started to go down after a couple of days. I was really just focused on like this amazing journey I'm on is almost over. Like I'm going to have to go back to the real world. I've had a lot of like, you know, epiphanies in this time when you're spending 10, 12 plus hours just riding your bike next to someone. Like how much do you have? To talk to them about everyone else had hobbies and I was like oh my gosh I, I don't I don't have hobbies I haven't I've, I've spent my life just focused on I have to work really hard to be able to go to school so that I can get a good job so I can take care of my family and make my dad proud and, and you know so I was just focused on like okay I've got to get a job and like go into the real world because I just finished college right I, I graduated as a senior from UT and then I went on this bike ride and then it was about going to find a job and, and being an adult. So did you then go into the workforce? I did. I got back from the ride. I moved back home with my mom um, because I was so focused on Texas 4000 and being the leader that I, I didn't have time to look for a job before the ride. Um, so I spent a couple of months um, getting acclimated back to the real world and not just being in the wilderness with 28 other people going to the grocery store started to become overwhelming because it's just like, whoa, there's, there's so much. Um, and then I got a job 
um, just as an admin assistant for actually the doctor who treated my dad um, for cancer. So I, I worked in that unit, which felt very purposeful for me at the time of I was continuing to be in the cancer world that had now be I've become very passionate about. And then I worked there for um, a couple of months before joining um, CeCe's Pizza, which I don't know if you guys have that where you are, but um, I <laughs> worked as a, I got a job as a communications manager for the corporate office for CeCe's Pizza. Well, Courtney, I do have to interrupt. Here in New York, we have real pizza. <laughs> Listen, I, I do not yeah. think pizza is good. And looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I worked there, but it was a job. Um, and, and yeah, I, I started just living my life, but it was interesting because I was all of a sudden, like, like I mentioned, I'm very much like I give 110% to anything I decide that I'm going to do. And I was really starting to struggle to do that. Um, I was tired all the time and was, you know, being forgetful and I was having aches and pains and I was like, man, this bike ride really did a lot to me. Like my body hurts all the time. And is this just what adulthood is like? Is you're just tired all the time? Um, so how did your symptoms develop and how did they begin to interfere with your capacity to first perform at work? And then I'd like you to talk with us about whether it was beginning to have an impact on your social life. Absolutely. So my symptoms were kind of they creeped in where it was one here, one there, all very different where I didn't connect them that they even had, that, that they could be together or that something was wrong. It, it, it was kind of like, you know, I started to be achy and I was like, oh, that's weird. And then I started to have some brain fog and then some memory issues where people would, would tell me something and, you know, a week later, I would ask them a question like, we had a full conversation about this. We had like a heated long discussion about this. I'm like, no, we didn't. We, we haven't talked. Like, what are you talking about? And I started realizing, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm having a lot of memory issues. Um, and then it was like word retrieval. And then I had a lot of um, like my, when I would stand, my feet all of a sudden would turn super red and would start to hurt like they were on fire. And I was like, this is so weird. Like my feet look so weird. Um, but again, these were all just very random things that I didn't think had anything to do with each other. And so I kept kind of just pushing them off and not paying attention to them. Um, and it, it, they just continued to accumulate over time. And probably after a year of having all these random symptoms start to come together, you know, I had a boyfriend at the time and he started getting super frustrated with me of we've had this conversation so many times, or like you said, you were going to do this thing. And I just would have no recollection of it at all. I all of a sudden, you know, wasn't spending time with friends as much. And I was wanting to just spend the weekends at home, like laying on the couch and watching TV. And um, I just wasn't the social butterfly that I used to be. And I wasn't as motivated as I used to be, but it really took like a year of feeling that way and it, and it building before I even noticed of like, Hey, like something, something is going on. I don't feel like myself. What did you first start to see doctors for these symptoms that were developing over that first year? I start, I saw a doctor, I went to a doctor, just like the my primary care doctor in my hometown, um, probably eight to 10 months after um, getting back from the ride, might've even been a year because of my feet and the numbness and tingling I was feeling and the redness that I was getting whenever I stood up. And, um, and I was just tired all the time. I was like this, you know, weird. So how is your mom responding to all these developing symptoms? She, she pushed me up being like, you should go to the doctor. You should go to the doctor. But I just kept being like, oh, I'll, you know, it's not that big a deal. Like I'll get to it. I just felt like I didn't have time to focus on these things that were going on because I wanted to, you know, do really good at my job and I wanted to have a social life. And I, I you know, I think 
I maybe subconsciously knew something was going on that I wasn't ready to admit to myself. Um, I grew up with a dad with chronic illness. I, I, I saw what that looked like. And I think I was maybe a little scared of accepting that something was going on with me. And so I avoided it. How were your, how were your sisters reacting to you as your symptoms were developing and as you began to socially retreat? So at the time I, um, all my sisters were three years apart each. Um, so when I was home with my mom, it was just me and my youngest sister. Um, my middle sister right under me, she was in Colorado. My oldest sister was in Austin. So they weren't really around to see it. So they didn't, it was something that it was easy for me to hide. It's like they, they wouldn't have noticed. Um, it, it was more probably my friends just maybe noticing, but I really tried hard to hide any symptoms of that anything was wrong with me. Now, Courtney, you said after this year, when you first began to see your doctor, you were thinking that this may have been related to your bike ride that, you know, is this what it feels like after taking a 70 mile trek and sort of beating yourself down? Did you ever connect it to the bite that you suffered and the doctor's visit that you had? Yeah. So the, my journey finding, I, finding out that I had Lyme, I think is very similar to what a lot of people with Lyme experience. I went to my primary care. I said, you know, I'm having this num numbness and tingling in my feet and even my hands. I'm really tired. So we did a blood test and it was just like, oh, your vitamin D is low. Your vitamin D is low. You need to, you know, take more vitamin D. He did a test on the um, blood flow in my hands and feet and it was almost zero. And I was like, that's that something has to be wrong. Even his nurse was like, that is really weird. You have almost no circulation in your hands and feet, but he still ignored that and was just like, ah, I think your vitamin D is just low. So I took vitamin D kept going. Nothing was changing. I was still tired. I was getting worse with my brain fog, my memory issues, word retrieval, the numbness and tingling was getting worse, the joint pain. I go back and he'd be like, well, your vitamin D is still low. I continue to take vitamin D. And then at that point, I was just frustrated. And, you know, I was a couple years into my career. I had an opportunity to move to Houston, Texas, um, to work for another company and, and get a promotion. And this sounded like a great opportunity. So I had put all these things on the side of like, this is just getting in my way. I, you know, I'm again, very career focused. I, I want to just focus on that. So I'm not going to focus on all these symptoms. I'm just going to push through it. I can do it. I can push through it. So now while you're soldiering on and just fighting through all these symptoms, did you take any time to do any Google research or WebMD research or try to find out whether or not the doctors were in fact giving you a proper diagnosis? No, I wasn't. And I really wish that I would have advocated for myself sooner because if I would have known what Lyme disease was when I first got the bite, this, we could be having a different conversation. Um, or if I would have advocated more for myself when the doctor was just like, oh, you're fine. You're, you know, it's just vitamin D. This would have been a different conversation, but it took until I moved to Houston in a new city with a new job with only one friend in the whole city and the stress that that put on my body for you know, for me to finally find out that I had Lyme. So essentially what happened was I moved to Houston and all my symptoms just got extremely bad. Um, I be, you know, I was excited to move to Houston and make a bunch of new friends and join, you know, a kickball league and join a book club and like do a bunch of stuff to meet people. I did none of it. I just, I became a recluse in my apartment and I worked really hard all week and then I slept as soon as I got home and I slept all weekend and I was starting to lose, you know, I was working and I was losing my ability to read where I would look at an email and I, I know what this word is, but I can't read it. You know, it, it, and it, and it started to scare me, but I didn't want to tell anybody because I was like, you know, I'm strong. I'm, you know, I have this new job. I have to, you know, I have to perform. I've got to make money. And so again, I ignored it and I just kept it to myself and it kept getting worse. And eventually, you know, I mentioned it to my mom and she's like, I'm, I'm, like, things are still getting bad. Like I'm struggling. And she was like, you have to go to a doctor. I know of a doctor in Houston who 
um, thinks outside of the box. I really think you should go. And it wasn't until she pushed me that I went to this doctor and had a consult with her and told her everything that was going on. And, and she said to me, have you been out in the wilderness lately at all? And I was like, well, I went on a bike ride from Austin to Anchorage, like when this all kind of started to happen. And she said, well, I think you might have a tick-borne illness. And at that time, I was just, you know, I was like, okay, you know, so you say, I don't think that I do because every doc, you know, doctor that I talked to before was just like, you're fine. So she's like, let's do a blood test. I didn't really think anything of it. Um, a week later, it came back and I had Lyme disease. Courtney, let's put this in perspective time-wise. From the time you got bit and you thought it was a, a spider bite, but it was really a tick bite when you were 24, how long went by until you moved to your new job and found this new doctor? Was this a six-month window, a several-year window? This was, um, this was four years later. So this was quite a long period of time. Um, you know, it was three years after that I first went to a doctor, um, when I finally, you know, found a physician who was Lyme literate and tested me and, and it came back positive. Um, so it was a long journey and I, and I spent most of that trying to ignore how I felt. And that was just a detriment to me because my symptoms just got worse and worse. Now, before you moved, you said you kept seeing the same doctor who said you were vitamin D deficient and potentially it was just you were tired and needed more rest. Was this the only doctor you saw before you moved and saw this Lyme, Lyme litter doctor who recommended Lyme disease? Yeah, he's the only one. I went to my primary care and he made me feel like it was nothing. He brushed me off so much that I was just like, okay, like this is just me or it's in my head, you know? Um, and what I've learned through this journey is every doctor is not created equal and you have to advocate for yourself. If you feel like something is wrong in your body, you have to listen to yourself. Many doctors live in their box and they don't want to look outside of it. So if you don't make sense for exactly the bullet points of, you know, a specific type of, you know, whatever could be going on that they're used to seeing, they're going to dismiss you. And I, and I let them, I let that doctor's feelings overtake me. And I started to have that same thought about myself. If there's somebody listening to this podcast episode, who is where you were, they now are not feeling well, they've been out in nature, potentially had a bite. They don't know what it was. And their doctors are telling them just to move on. It's probably a vitamin deficiency or they're tired. What would you recommend to them that they do that you didn't do when you first started getting symptoms? The first thing I would do is start doing research. Um, and I, and I say that with, you know, also wanting to say there isn't a lot of great research out there about Lyme and you could go and read one article and it say one thing and read another one and it say something completely different. Um, so, you know, so I say that and then it's hard, you know, I'm like, you need to do your research, but it's hard to do research. Um, if you think you have Lyme, if you're listening to this and you have symptoms like I've experienced or listened to any other, other podcasts um, on here, then you like, the best thing you can do is research a Lyme literate physician and figure out if this, if it is Lyme or a tick-borne illness that you're dealing with because so many physicians don't believe in Lyme, so many don't understand Lyme, so you could have it and be misdiagnosed if you just go to the wrong physician. So if you, if you have symptoms, if you have a bunch of random symptoms that you don't understand, they can't be explained, there's a good chance you have Lyme disease. So you should research and find a Lyme literate doctor and don't give up. If you don't feel like something is right, something is wrong and you have to keep advocating for yourself until you find someone who's willing to go on this journey with you and help you figure out how to get better. It sounds like another lesson that you learned throughout all this is to have a support system. So you were having brain fog, you could barely read, and eventually your mom said, hey, you need to go to the doctor, I'm going to recommend this doctor, you need to go figure out what's going on. So do you think it's important for people to consult with their loved ones for some guidance when they're struggling through this illness? Absolutely. I think, you know, Lyme disease is an invisible illness. 
when people can't see it, they often don't want to, um, to recognize it or give you credit that you're struggling. So I didn't want to just be sit, sitting there and complaining about something that I couldn't prove that was happening. So I kept it to myself and that was just a detriment to me. And luckily I did eventually feel comfortable enough talking to my mom about it, but I wish I would have had more conversations sooner. I could have potentially met someone who had Lyme and they could have told me, Hey, it sounds like you might have Lyme disease. You should look into it. Um, you, as, as hard as it might be, and there might be shame involved with it, right? Of like, I, I, you know, I feel broken or I feel like, I don't feel like myself. Like there's mental aspects of it. Um, the depression, the anxiety, you, you're, you're scared to talk about it. It only does you more harm to not open up and have those conversations with people you feel safe with because it, otherwise it becomes a monster in your head and you're, and it, it, it's even heavier the longer you wait. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of conversation within the community about like the longer you wait, the harder it is to treat. And I did that to myself and I, and I, you know, hope by having these types of conversations, I can help someone who is doing the same thing. Didn't want to accept that they were sick. Didn't want to, you know, got one answer and was like, okay, that's good enough. They know better than me to get a second opinion, to listen to your body. But at the same time, you also really can't blame yourself. I mean, you were having clearly having neurological problems where you couldn't even process a sentence, never mind process a logical thought. And you were in the woods, you were exposed to a tick heavy area. You had a bite. And none of your doctors thought potentially Lyme disease and you exhibited classic Lyme symptoms. So you can't put all the blame on yourself. And I think that's why it's important to have a support system and, to, and to, to research as you noted. But really, we need to get more awareness out there to help others be aware of these symptoms. So collectively, we can have less time go by before we have a diagnosis. And as you noted, then the longer, the longer it goes to get a diagnosis, the, the harder it is to now get better and get into remission from Lyme disease. Absolutely. So well said. So... Let's talk more about your actual diagnosis. So when you went to this doctor who suggested Lyme, did they run a traditional Lyme test, a Western blot, and they send it out to a specialist, potentially like an Armin Labs or a, uh, any other special lab out there? No, so I just got the traditional lab core test, um, and that's what came back that I had Lyme disease. And I think I, you know, from what I've heard from other people in the community, pretty lucky that that even came up because often um, those are negative. So that, you know, I got lucky that I landed at a doctor finally that knew Lyme and knew how to test it to find out if, if I had it. And, you know, the biggest thing was that I had, you know, Lyme markers in my body and also my CD57 was extremely low, which is your autoimmune level. And my ATP was horrendous, you know, where like my doctor told me at your age, your ATP level should be around 30. And I was at like 12. So I was living my life and trying to, you know, live a normal life with half the amount of energy, less than half the amount of energy that a normal person needs. Um, and, and that was a huge, that actually was, was huge for me of, of, of like, okay, wow. <laughs> this isn't just me. Like it, it really is difficult to do what I'm doing and that's okay because I don't have the energy to do it in my body. So once you, you ran this test, let's talk about finding out you actually had Lyme. What did your doctor call you and tell you the results? Did he call you back in for an appointment and he told you face to face? And what was that like to know you had Lyme? And did you think it was something that was going to be a quick fix or did you realize the severity of, of the long journey you had ahead of you? To yeah. So again, very uneducated on what was in front of me. I did the Lyme test. I actually remember it was Thanksgiving. I was at my sister's house with my whole family. And I, I think my mom was just like, we should check to see if your lab core results are back. So, she, you know, we pulled it up on the computer and there were a bunch of markers for Lyme. And she was like, oh my gosh, these all came back positive. And I was like, mm, really? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, well, you know, I bet she'll have a reason why this isn't Lyme, whatever, still dismissing it. 
went to the doctor the next week and she was like, yeah, you have Lyme disease. And I was like, oh my gosh. And at that moment, it was definitely a like, thank you God for giving me something that I can connect all of these issues to the anxiety, the depression that I had never had in my entire life, even through going, losing my father, I, I had never struggled with depression, anxiety. And all of a sudden it had become a dark cloud over my life. The numbness and tingling that I constantly felt from the neuropathy that I had, the memory loss, the loss of my social life, um, the, you know, not having, not, no longer having the ability to do work or read or, you know, all of these things that I had started to believe were just in my head or I was making up, like I now had a legitimate reason for. So I was so excited. And all she said was, you know, I went to that doctor's appointment. She said I had Lyme disease and she said, you know, we're going to do a treatment protocol. You're going to, um, I misunderstood her and I thought I heard her say, you're going to do six weeks of doxycycline, you know, of doxycycline. You're going to feel worse before you feel better. So drink a lot of water. Um, having no idea there was actually three rounds of treatments, you know, of antibiotics that we were going to be doing. This was actually going to be a very long journey. I left that thinking I have Lyme disease. It's going to be six weeks and I'm going to be so much better. I've gotten so much accomplished while being sick like this. I cannot wait to see what I can accomplish as an adult without Lyme. When this is all gone, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be like the best worker. I'm going to have, you know, be so much more social. I can't wait to like get a boyfriend again because that had been something I'd completely lost. Like I, I had no space emotionally for anybody else. Like I couldn't, I couldn't let anybody else in. Um, so I was so excited. So I went and called my best friend and told her I have Lyme disease. And she also didn't know what it was. And she actually was on the bike ride with me to Alaska. And, you know, we talked, we hung up and then she calls me right back. She had gone and Googled Lyme disease to learn more. And she saw what a, um, a, um, tick bite that had Lyme looks like. So the bullseye rash and she calls me and she's Courtney, that bite you got on the ride that you thought was a spider bite was a tick bite. And I was astonished. I was like, really? And she was like, go look it up. And so I went online and I, and I looked it up and I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what my bite looked like. And I actually still had the picture um, of the bite that I had sent to my mom. So I went and like scrolled through my phone and found it. And the date was August, I think it was August 3rd of 2014 was that I had the date and the picture of the bite that gave me Lyme disease. And it was four years later and just finding out that I had Lyme. So let's talk more through your, your treatment. So it sounds like you started with six weeks of doxycycline, which you thought was going to be the entirety of your treatment, but there's obviously more to it. So when did you realize there was going to be more to your treatment? And what was it like when you first started taking doxycycline? Yeah. So I, um, again, at this point I'm living in Houston. I have one friend there. I live alone and I'm starting treatment. And this is still a fairly new job. You know, I've been in this job living in Houston for probably about six or seven months when I started treatment. So I start doxy and I, you know, at this point I'm still trying to work out five days a week. Um, as much as I can, I'm trying to be active. I'm working, you know, 50 plus hours a week. And I'm like, okay, well, I got to make sure I drink a lot of water because she said I wasn't going to feel better. I had no idea what I was in for. I had no idea what a Herx was. I remember one weekend, like probably like oh, four, three or four days after starting treatment, I felt like I had the flu times 110. It was just it was horrific. And I'd start Googling what the heck is happening to me. And I'm struggling to find anything online that explains what I'm going through, but I, I, I wish I could quote or source who the, the blog that I read, I can't remember now, but I remember reading a blog saying like what herxing was Lyme disease when you start treatment and the inflammation in your body from pulling the Lyme out. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what is happening to me. I feel so sick. All of my symptoms got way, way worse um, to the point where I, I was barely making it to work every day. 
I was going to the bathroom thinking I was going to throw up every couple of hours. Um, but I didn't want anybody to know. So I was still trying to hide it and still have this strong facade of like, you know, I'm a hard worker and you know, I've got this. Um, and I, I got to the point where I called my doctor and I was like, I can't work. I can't work like this. Like we've got, we've got to do something. So she ended up cutting down the amount of doxy I was taking because I, I couldn't handle it. And at the time I was like, you know, I have to work. I can't, I can't do this. Um, and so I finished the six weeks and, you know, we tested the lime and there was just more lime in my body because we had pulled it out. And she's like, okay, now it's the next round. And I was like, what next round? I thought, I thought we were done. And that's when I realized this is a very long journey. And just because you do one protocol or one round of treatment does not mean that you are cured of Lyme. And that's when I started going down the rabbit hole of, can you even be cured of Lyme? Um, in, in a long journey to get me to here today. So once you were done with the doxycycline, what was your next course of treatment? And did she cycle antibiotics? And what was the plan moving forward to, you know, get you into remission and get you healed? Yeah, so I, I can't remember the exact um, medications that I took, part of my Lyme disease, um, Lyme brain of like not being able to remember, but um, it was like doxycycline. Then I think we did more of like a natural medicine and then we did another antibiotic. It didn't work. Um, so then, you know, she just started throwing different things at me. And a lot of my issues were cognitive. Um, and I was like, it's not working. I'm still having all these cognitive issues. I just, the medicine just made me worse where I started to become a really mean person. Um, I was having, I was lashing out and not even remembering the interactions with people. I probably got, almost got fired multiple times from my job because I just became such an angry and aggressive person. And I didn't even realize it was happening. Like I, I would go back and be like, that wasn't me. Like I, I like I wasn't there. I, I don't even remember that. I'm so sorry. People, they don't understand that and they don't believe it. They think you're just using it as an excuse. So I just kept getting sicker and sicker. And I was, you know, I, I kept going back to her like, okay, this still isn't working. Um, I'm still at that one physician in Houston that diagnosed me. So I had a lot of hope in her because she was, you know, she led me to find out that I had Lyme. And so she, you know, I was like, listen, I will do whatever it takes. I will pay whatever it takes. I need to get my life back. So um, she was like, well, you know, the, our best course of treatment is probably doing IV antibiotics. Um, so let's go ahead and try that. And at, at this point, I've also completely changed my diet, right? I am like, I'm having no caffeine, no sugar, um, minimal carbs, like only up to 50 grams of carbs a day no um, gluten, no dairy, no alcohol. I am completely restricted my life. I, I'm doing everything that I can at this point. I'm not working out anymore because I have no energy for it. It's literally work and treatment. Um, so I pay out of pocket to do IV antibiotics and I'm crossing my fingers. This is gonna be the thing. Um, and it wasn't the thing. So Courtney, I just wanna, just wanna share with you that if you haven't heard of it, Lyme rage is a real thing. We recently had a woman, Jennifer Gladys, who is the wife of a Lyme speak and give a Lyme hack on our Instagram. We encourage you and, our, and everybody listening to check it out. And she really clearly explains what Lyme rage is and provides some tips to get through it as a loved one to, as a, to somebody who has Lyme disease. So as you probably know, that wasn't you. And that was something we call Lyme rage. And, and people that are listening need to know that that's real. And there are tips and hacks that can help you get through it. And you can get through it, as you know, to get through that Lyme rage period of your life. Yeah, that's such a great point. You know, as that was happening to me, again, I was going back to the Google and trying to figure out what's going on. And I'd read a couple of blogs and even sent them to my boss trying to explain, like, it's not me. Look, like, look this literally happens to people. I, like, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm not meaning it. Um, but the impact is still there. And I had to accept that, too. Even if I didn't mean it, what it was still painful for the person across the table. So it's it's such a rock and a hard place for people with Lyme. Of you're like it's it's not me. Literally, I've been taken over. I don't have control of my body right now. I, it it's the worst thing ever. But I still have to understand that that impacts others and give grace and space for that. 
for sure. So to put put it into perspective time-wise again, you went through the oral antibiotics, you did some herbal therapies, you went back to some other antibiotics, and then you went to IV antibiotics, right? And the IV antibiotics didn't work. And what? how long into your, your journey are you now? You got diagnosed, are we talking a year later now that you're concluding your IV antibiotics? Yeah, so we're a year later and um, I'm just worse. I'm not any better. There maybe were like little stents of, of the treatment working where I had like a month or so, or, you know, a couple weeks of like, oh, you know, clear headed, feeling okay. Um, but then I would just, that roller coaster, right? And there were way more downs than there were ups. And I, I had so much hope for the IV antibiotics. I had read that it worked for a lot of people. Um, and I, I just knew this was going to be the thing I was committed to. So I have these antibiotics where I have a at-home nurse coming to my house twice a day, and I'm also working 50 hours a week. So he's there at 7 a.m. giving me my antibiotics. I go to work. I come home. He gives me my next one 12 hours later. I'm still working, and I'm just going. And I'm not accepting how sick I am. And at this point, I have friends and family who are saying it to me um, probably about Four or five months earlier, my mom and best friend told me I needed to move home and focus on my health. And I was enraged. I was so hurt and angry at both of them for even thinking that I couldn't handle myself. Um, and, you know, I was trying to hide from how sick I was. I didn't want to accept it. I didn't want people to see me as weak. And so I, you know, again, I was, I'm doing the treatment, I'm doing everything, but I didn't want to give in to changing my lifestyle or changing how, you know, focusing on my career. Um, and so, you know, I did the, I did those antibiotics and I was, you know, fingers crossed. And also, I mean, for anyone who has Lyme, you know, that's not covered by insurance. So I'm paying out of pocket, you know, almost for a month of IV antibiotics, like almost $4,000 out of my own pocket to do this. And I get tested because I'm not feeling any better. I get tested in the Lyme. It, nothing has changed. My numbers haven't changed. The Lyme hasn't gone away. And I, I'm doing worse at work. And it's starting to become really heavy. And, and I start to, you know, I, I haven't shared this, you know, completely openly, even on my page, but I started to have thoughts of like, what am I doing on this earth? Why am I here? Um, what am I like not feeling worth it, feeling super heavy of like, life isn't worth it. Nothing is worth it. Everything is heavy. Everything is dark. I can't do anything. Um, and that was really scary. Um, and, and I just got really stuck in it and I had to after the treatment didn't work. And my doctor literally said to me, I don't have anything else. I'm going to a Lyme conference in November. I'll let you know if I learn anything new. I was just like, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I like this. This isn't working for me. And I finally had to come to the realization that I had to stop working and I had to focus on my health. Um, and I moved back home to Dallas to live with my mom and start advocating for myself and starting, start focusing a hundred percent on my health. Courtney, you, you are not alone in the fact that you have those thoughts. You are our 110th podcast guest. And we've had way too many people share that they've had similar thoughts like that because Lyme not only affects you physically, it affects you psychologically as well. So it's known that Lyme will cause that depression and anxiety you noted and other psychological symptoms. So your, your physical health is deteriorating, your mental health is deteriorating, and your doctor's telling you, I don't know what to do to help you. So you have to sort of look back and say, you know, how much can one person take? And, and thank you for sharing that with us, but you're not alone. And it's just a, a horrible thing to have to go through. So at this point now, it sounds like you're moving back home with your family, you're at your worst, and you're probably looking for another doctor now who's a little bit more Lyme literate. So can you walk us through what that was like, and, and did you ha do that, or were you just so sick that your mom had to jump in and help you find your Lyme litter doctor to go to the next step of your healing journey? Yeah, so it's definitely, my mom was a huge part of this. I mean, she became my caregiver, essentially, when I moved home. 
Um, and she had a lot of experience with my dad who was sick my whole life. And, and I hated that I was now putting this on her as her daughter. There was still a lot of that shame of, I, since I was a little girl, wanted to make my dad proud and I wanted to be able to support my family because that was something we struggled with my whole life because of his health. And I wanted to be the person that, that kept the family together and, you know, took care of the financial burdens or whatever it may be. I wanted to take care of that. And now I was, now I was the sick one that needed help and it it was really hard, but you know, we started working together because I had lost a lot of my ability to even focus Um, you know, when I moved home, I was sleeping probably 20 hours a day for at least a month. I was bedridden. Um, so I I took some time just to let my body rest because of what I had done to it over the last four plus years. Um, I finally was listening to it and it was telling me, you just need to stop and like, give it a breather. So I did that. And then once I finally like came up from sleeping for a month, Um, we started researching and trying to find Lyme literate doctors. I went to a couple of doctors. I went to a neurologist. um, And then I actually had a friend of a friend send a podcast, uh, the Bulletproof podcast. Um, They had a, um, they had a um, LLMD come on and talk about Lyme disease and mold. And I had never heard anything about mold toxicity at that point. Um, but they talked a lot about how people with Lyme tend to have mold because of your immune system. And a lot of times the mold is actually causing your symptoms to be worse and keeping you from being able to treat the Lyme. So I got really excited hearing this podcast of everything you're saying sounds exactly like what I'm going through. And this physician was in Virginia and I live in, you know, I'm in Dallas, Texas, and I'm like, I've got to go. I have to go see this doctor. I will fly across the country. I will do whatever it takes. Um, so, uh, me and my mom end up, you know, booking flights and, um, going to, to Virginia to see a doctor. Um, and I get tested for mold and I have really high mold. Um, and, um, you know, I, over the next 10 months, um, really started to shift how I treated my Lyme and my mold. We tested our house. We found out we had mold in our house. So we had to take care of that. I stopped treating Lyme um, and I started treating the mold. And what my doctor, what her hypothesis was and hope was if we get rid of the mold, your body should be able to start handling, taking care of some of the Lyme. Um, And it was a long process through it. I was trying to get long-term disability, um, and being told left and right by physicians and people in insurance that I was, um, psychosomatic. So I was making it all up. Um, and I, you know, I, that 10 months of my life, like stopping after being like, all I want to do in life is work really hard. And, you know, provide for my family, stopping and losing my complete identity of, of how, how I identified myself to go in to my childhood bedroom and not come out for many months was really, really difficult, but it was probably the best thing I've ever done for myself in my entire life. And I contribute a lot to my healing process. So there's, there's a lot of lessons, I think, out of what you just said. And the first is that when you're that sick, it's important to have that support system we talked about earlier for your mom to help you find the right doctor and and help you through this journey. But also, if you're doing many things to treat Lyme, and you're getting worse and worse and worse, look for other things that could potentially be keeping you sick, like mold toxicity, because Lyme does keep your immune system down. And now you are more susceptible to mold compared to a healthy person. So I think that's another important lesson for people that aren't getting better to look look at the possibility of mold exposure, keeping them sick with Lyme. So once you realize this, and now you found this new doctor and you start treating for Lyme because you found, you, you did find mold in We did find mold in my home. Um, we, our ceiling actually collapsed in our living room from a purse, a, a, a pipe that burst. And 
there was mold everywhere. And the insurance company took over a month to come patch up the hole. So I was living in the house with a hole in the ceiling with mold and trying to treat it for, you know, two or so months before anything happened. And I was having, you know, phone calls with my doctor in Virginia. And she's like, we're, we're treating your mold, but nothing's going to happen while you're still in it. You're essentially just keeping yourself at the same level, but nothing's happening. So I made a huge stink to the insurance company of like my health. I, I cannot be in here. And they finally put me up in a hotel room. So I, I went and lived in a hotel for a month and a half or so. And that's when I finally started to feel a difference and started to have a little bit more clear clarity in my head and started to have a bit more energy. Um, and, and I saw a shift for myself in, in my treatment or, or in my healing journey. So Courtney, this was really, I think the game changer for you was identifying that your mold exposure is keeping you down. Once you had identified the source of the mold and now moved out of the, your home into a hotel where you weren't exposed to the mold and treating the mold, you start to get better and better and better and saw actual real results that you've never seen before. And this, this was within the last couple of months and within the last one year window. So that sort of leads us up to the question of, of how are you feeling today and, and what treatment are you currently doing, if any? Because you look great, you sound great, you're very clear, you're very smart. I mean, you've, you've done a great job on this interview. So how are you feeling today? And what would you say was the, the best part? And, and it sounds like it was the mold component of your healing journey. What was the best treatment that you did that got you to where you are today? Yeah, I, you know, I first want to preface, I think you make a really good point of like, what was that turning point for me? I think with Lyme, a lot of times we think we're there before we are, and it can be really, really um, devastating to us. I thought the turning point was when I found out I had Lyme. Then I thought the turning point was when I was going to do those IV antibiotics. And both times... And I'm sure there was even more turning points that I can't remember in my head right now, but I was so, so upset that that wasn't the thing that was going to make a difference and had thoughts of, I'm never going to get better and wanting to give up. And I just want to say to anyone listening, don't give up. That's unfortunately how Lyme works. You have to go under many, many rocks before you finally find the one that works. And often it's all of them, accumulation of all of them together until something finally clicks. I think they were all building up to that turning point for me was when I found out that mold was a factor and getting out of the mold and getting that out of, of my life. And I was scared to believe that that was going to be the case, right? At this point, I'm just like, you know, I'm going to have Lyme forever. This isn't get you know, this probably isn't going to work. Don't get your hopes up. So I, you know, I tried to prepare myself, but I think, you know, to answer your question of like, what was it that made the difference of me getting to where I am today, where I'm able to, you know, have this conversation and, and, um, only have a little bit of word retrieval issues, um, is that I took all of those steps. And then finally, I stopped. I stopped and focused on my health and I let my body rest. I did a bunch of treatments, but I wasn't letting my body recoup from them. I didn't have enough energy for it. My body was in fight or flight for five years, you know? And I, when I finally stopped and let the medicine do what it needed and I focused on the mold, which for me was the big factor of keeping me sick, um, that, that made the difference. And I do want to say like, I still have Lyme and I still have some mold. I am not healed. I'm not cured, but I'm in a really good spot right now. Um, and I, I think that's important to say, and I'm, I'm coming to a place where I'm accepting that of like, this might be a part of my journey for the rest of my life where I'm managing this. And right now I'm in a really, really good place. And I appreciate it more than I ever, ever could have if I hadn't have experienced this. I was so excited when I got a job again. Like I used to hate Mondays before I had to stop working. By the time I started working again, I was, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed up and like, let's do this. Let's do some spreadsheets. Let's do, you know, and, and it's given me a really um, unique perspective on life and, and a gratitude for it. 
So let's talk about how that gratitude has now uh, presented itself into you giving to the community. How did you find the time and the energy to start giving back to the community through your social media when you were going through such a terrible journey? Yeah, so that was definitely part of my personal journey. Now, I've mentioned a lot in this, like as we've talked about how I didn't want other people to see me as sick. I didn't want to accept that I was sick. That felt very vulnerable. I wanted to be seen as a strong person. Um, and I, you know, when I finally accepted I'm sick and I'm not getting better, I have to stop working. I wanted to challenge myself to fully, again, 110% lean into it and, um, and, and be where I was. And I felt like I wanted to be, I wanted to share my journey to show myself that I could, and I could be vulnerable to do that. So I decided to start a blog. Um, and it, it first just was like, oh, okay, I'm going to have a blog and I should probably have an Instagram page so that I can get people to the blog. But what I ended up finding when I started it and I didn't start I didn't start it until I, I um, stopped working, but it was the only thing I gave energy to other than um, sleeping. Um, but was that there was this huge community of people who felt the exact same way that I did and were struggling in silence um, and being dismissed just as much as I was. And I have to say, you know, I said, what made me get to the point I am now, a lot of it was the stopping, resting, focusing on my health. It was also the community that I found online of not feeling alone and having the encouragement of others, being able to say, I'm having a really bad day and someone understanding what I meant by that and telling me I'm going to be okay and I'm thinking of you. It's, it's, it's really crazy how much that really does make a difference when you are in that very dark and sick place. Um, so Courtney, as you've continued on your journey and as your health has improved, you continued to work on your social media and you continued to be really authentic on your social media. And I have to tell you that when I was doing my pre, uh, podcast, um, research on you and the work that you're doing, what I found to be so powerful about your, um, Instagram in particular, was not just its writing, but the authenticity, where you weren't using filters. You were putting up pictures where you were acknowledging that you weren't looking your best. And I have to tell you that was a unique experience for me, who's now done research on over 100 guests um, to prepare for over 100 podcasts, where you're the only one that would put up a picture of yourself in a bathing suit and say, hey, I don't really look good in this, um, in this picture. And I've really struggled with my weight issues since I've um, been diagnosed with Lyme disease. So tell us why you've been, at least in our experience, maybe the only person that's been authentic. No filters, no perfect pictures, just Courtney who she is, and then sharing with everyone how you were feeling. Why, why are you willing to be that vulnerable? I, I tried to look at it from when I, when I put stuff on Instagram or, you know, on social media, what would I want to hear on the other side as someone who is struggling or hasn't gone as far as I've gone in my journey? What are the things that when I go to bed at night are keeping me awake or putting, you know, twisting my stomach and I, I can't get over, I feel ashamed of, feel too vulnerable. And I, I feel like that's probably what other people are feeling too. If I share it, can I help break that stigma? Can I help someone else feel seen or not alone? Um, and that's really important to me. As someone who was too scared to be vulnerable before this started, that's something Lyme has given me. Um, and, you know, I, I talked about earlier, I didn't have a passion for life. There wasn't something that I, you know, particularly cared about or wanted to do. I just wanted to work hard and take care of my family or, you know, be seen as strong. I now have a purpose in life, and that is to advocate for a chronic illness community that is often overlooked and ignored. It sounds to me that 
you are taking care of your family. It's just a different family. It's not the small group of people who you were biologically related to, but a much larger family in the Lyme community. I love that. Yeah. So now let me ask you the question we ask all of our uh, guests. If God forbid tomorrow your mother came to visit you in Austin and she showed you that she had a tick biting her on her leg, what would you recommend that she do so that she wouldn't have to go on the terrible journey that you've gone on? Man. Okay. So a question. It, does she have the tick still or does she not have the tick still? She does. The tick is on her leg. Yeah, tick is on her leg. Okay. First thing, take that tick off, put it in a bag and research where you can go get the tick tested because it is easier to test a tick for Lyme than it is to test yourself for Lyme. So you need to do both if you're lucky enough to have the tick. Um, and then the first thing I would want her to do is to go get tested for Lyme. And, you know, I'm not a doctor and I don't want to, you know, I, I try to be very careful on my social media of not giving any medical advice because I really believe we are all very different and our treatment needs to be very different because Lyme decides what it wants to attack in your body, how it's going to attack you. So what works for one person might not work for someone else. But when it comes to being diagnosed, advocate for yourself get multiple tests, make sure you don't have it and get tested as quickly as you can. Take it seriously. If you don't get a bullseye rash, that does not mean that you don't have Lyme. I think the stat is, you know, almost 50% of people don't see a bullseye rash that have Lyme disease. I got lucky that I saw one, but I didn't know about it. Right. So it, it you know, it didn't make a difference. And that's a, a huge thing. I think about often on my bad days of like, man, if you were just educated, None of this would have happened. You could have, you know, taken care of this, you know, potentially with six weeks of antibiotics and, and not gone through all of this, this trouble. So I'd really say, take the tick, get that tested, get yourself tested, watch for symptoms, be writing them down, anything that just feels abnormal, because if it doesn't show up in the first couple of weeks, it might be a couple months till you notice anything changing. So um, even if you get a negative test, watch yourself for a couple of months and, and, you know, stay in tune with your body. You know, your body better than anybody else. And until we get better testing for Lyme that can be more accurate, you're the best test for yourself. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with the Lyme philosopher, Courtney Schutze. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Courtney Schutze and her tick disease journey, please visit our Instagram pages at Splash of Lyme or Courtney Schutze. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to offer us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review or rating on iTunes or our website. Thank you for listening.